Hello, and welcome to this first Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and each month I'll be bringing you interviews with some of Faber's best-known authors from around the world, and also introducing you to new writers. Later in this programme, you can hear Hanif Qureshi talking about his new novel, Something to Tell You. I've often thought that I was a writer who, who could do tight, short little books, and then I think... I want to do something that's much more sprawling and madder and wilder and less contained, that sometimes I'm too inhibited about my work. There's also an interview with Jenna Bailey, in which she talks about the story of a group of extraordinary women who formed a correspondence club in the 1930s, which helped its members through some testing times. Most of the women in the CCC had to move a lot during the war and had to send their kids away a lot during the war and so the magazine was the one constant during the war. They kept it up every month and it was some sort of a safety net for them. It was someone that they always could rely on and the friends that they knew were there the whole time. My first guest on the programme is Richard Kelly. One critic has described his novel Crusaders as a Dostoevskian doorstopper of a debut, by which I imagine he meant it is both a big book and a book that tackles big themes, including religion, politics, morality and crime. The book is set in Newcastle in 1996, shortly before Labour come to power. John Gore, a young idealistic clergyman, returns home to plant a new church in one of Newcastle's most deprived areas. This brings him into contact with the city's political and criminal classes. I asked Richard about the diverse elements he brings together in the book. There was a set of things that was starting to happen in the northeast around the mid-90s that I put together in my mind to conceive the story. And, and certainly the first of them was this phenomenon, if you like, of church planting, which the Church of England was seeming to get engaged in as a way of finding new congregations, addressing the you know, seemingly perennial decline of their existing ones, but also, I think, fulfilling um, what a certain wing of the church would regard as their social mission. Mm. So it was a kind of new form of church, rather low budget, in places where uh, sometimes even social services feared to go. What was it about that that made you think, ah, oh, this is this has got the, you know, the, the makings of a, a book? The, the, the image of someone, you know, rather like St Paul going into the, the town centre and standing on uh, up and getting rocks thrown at them is an attractive one. <laughs> that kind of the kind of stark, almost irrational <laughs> nature of the uh, of the mission, given mm. the difficulties you're going to face. So it has drama in it per se. But that, uh, coupled with that was the sense that I felt uh, of the landscape of the Northeast, the role of the church up there, both the, the, the Methodist Church and the Anglican Church, and its entwined history with uh, the Labour movement and the Labour Party, you know, um, the tradition of Christian socialism, if you like. It seemed to be one that was worth looking at in the context of... Uh, of the contemporary time, the then contemporary period, because another aspect of what I was interested in was at that time in the mid-90s was the election of Tony Blair as leader of the Labour Party, mm. because he was clearly churchy, uh, professedly so, and he uh, professed northeast roots. Uh, he was raised in High Shincliffe and he had his constituency in, in Sedgefield. There was also, I, sh- I should mention contemporaneously, the state of organised crime in Newcastle had sort of had the lid torn off it uh, somewhat by uh, a particularly nasty murder and it, that suddenly revealed the extent to which Newcastle as many other cities in the UK had been transformed in its criminal element by the amount of money to be made out mm. of drugs after the whole late 80s uh, acid house uh, explosion 
so yeah crime religion politics that was those were the elements in the brew how did you investigate the crime i'm particularly interested in the research that there's only so much i can say (laughs) is is the truth the people who helped me um can't really talk about them i certainly but I, i certainly met a number of a couple of people in particular who worked in the profession that's now known as, known as security consultancy, people that we used to call bouncers and, and still do to some extent, which is a very tough job and, and as I think we all know, can present certain temptations and some people remain above it. But um, you know, it's, uh, it's well documented that the traffic in narcotics in cities is often regulated through the doors of, of clubs. One moment that I, I picked up on was you mentioned Manny Shinwell, an old Labour MP, mm. who said something to the effect that as long as the North East has got coal, mm. it'll have no tells. Yeah. And really the whole book, I suppose, is dealing with that sort of post-industrial heritage mm. and what people do in that landscape, you know, and you mentioned yeah. the crime, the politics, the church, those mm. are the sort of three arenas in which the consequences of of no longer having that sort of strong mm. industry, strong faith, strong belief in a political cause yeah. are played out. Mm. It was the world of 1996, the book's time present, that I was going to have to depict most carefully that question of what comes next after the decline of heavy industry was was certainly the presenting problem. And it remains so <laughs> to an extent to this day, even though the regeneration of Newcastle which is seen to be in its kind of fledgling days in, in Crusaders, has since come on by considerable leaps. But there's still a, a similar problem in, uh, today, uh, what we might call a, a donut effect of regeneration, whereby the city centre is immaculate, as is the riverside. Mm. But uh, just, you know, 10 minutes walk east or west, you'll still find, you know, demolition and deprivation and worklessness, as is the... Mm. Um, the current uh, phrase and new occupations that don't necessarily fit the people who are still unfortunately living in these um, mm. depressed conditions. We find in the book by the time Gore has made the acquaintance of Martin Pallister, we find a lot of hard thinking going on about what uh, will replace you know, the great majestic heavy industries. What can regeneration do? It's probably a vague sense that maybe regeneration itself will be the industry that, that fills the gap. Yes, well, there's uh, people endlessly coming up with schemes and sending in platoons of seemingly uh, uh, right-thinking and helpful uh, community workers. Well, there's a blue skies thinking <laughs> conference, isn't there, which Pallister <laughs> invites Gore to, and Gore goes along yeah. with gritted teeth and feels very much this is not his this is not his thing at all. Exactly, but does he have any solutions himself? This, of course, is the, what what it comes down to in the the, the uh, un- uneasy friendship that is never quite far away from a fist fight between him and the MP. The old state socialism, which Pallister has decided has failed is something that uh, Gore kind of clings to through heritage, being of, of old Labour stock himself. But he is um, short of ideas when asked uh, what he actually concretely will propose as a remedy, other than you know, love each other or die, which I'm afraid is a bit too easy. <laughs> His own mission, I mean, he, he says to himself before preaching a sermon on one occasion, nothing too churchy, John. Mm. And it seems to me that he's kind of like a sort of not very effectual social worker a lot of the time. You know, he's, mm. he's, he, there's no, there's the, in contrast to him, there is an evangelical vicar 
also yeah. with, with, a, with a parish mm-hmm. and there's a, there's a marked contrast there between the way they, they want to put across their Christian message. The socialistic dimension of the church has always uh, is interested me a great deal. It, the, he's not mentioned in the book, but he, in a sense, would be a, a shadow over it. The figure of David Jenkins, the former Bishop of Durham, who in 1984 made a, a famous stand on behalf of the miners uh, in, in the midst of the, the terrible strike. And Jenkins was also controversial because a, a classic liberal, he, he dared to question you know, the, the virgin birth and the resurrection in ways that seemed perfectly normal to most educated people mm. at the time, but you know, still had the, the smack of heresy for some at the time. These days, in, in, our, in our, our current moment, uh, the evangelical church seems to have almost all the energy that's still uh, existent in, in Christianity. But, of course, uh, it stakes its claim on biblical truth and personal salvation, which again are, are I think, rather niche experiences mm. for a lot of people. In, in the eighties, I remember hearing a lot, of, hearing this terrible lament a lot of time. People resorting to Yeats's famous line about the best lack all conviction and the worst burn with a passionate intensity. And I got very sick of hearing that quite quickly. I, I thought, do you have any right to call yourself the best if you mm-hmm. are so short on convictions? Isn't it about time you got some passionate intensity going on to fight these enemies? And uh, one thing you can't fault the evangelicals for is their passion. And the same might be said you know, in a different case of, of modernizing politicians and whatnot. You have to uh, respect uh, anybody who's going about their job more efficiently and diligently than, than you are. Mm. <laughs> it seemed to me that masculine identity is something that you're particularly concerned with and how partic- particularly how men forge a way in the world in this sort of post-industrial Hmm. Landscape. And do you think do you, is that is that fair? I don't know if it's a particular. I, I, I'd be equally concerned about how women manage to. Uh, is a simple answer. I think there is a certain stress upon masculinity in the northeast that I've tried to convey in the book. And you know, the work associated with heavy industry was undoubtedly part of the gendered division of labor as they call it in sociology it was man's uh, work and there was a pride in that and it was facilitated by women having to take on an extremely heavy role in, in the household and with children and that's all changed in the new economy absolutely but it's it's as important to me in the novel that uh, lindy clark uh, has to work uh, three or four different what we might call short-term contract jobs <laughs> in order to make one wage for mm. her, uh, her young son, as it is that, that Steve Coulson effectively makes his living out of his own massively steroid-inflated uh, bulk. You take us through the events of the late 70s and the 80s, and you take the book right up to the eve of the general election mm. in 97. So in a way, you're, kind of, you're getting us to reflect on the Tory years and also implicitly to sort of think about what's coming after because there's all this build-up and, of course, the characters mm. in the book don't know what's coming, but we know because we've, we've lived through it and there's that sort of invitation to, yeah. to kind of reflect on, on, <laughs> on promises broken or you know, expectations not met. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a cycle that comes uh, on the dawn of uh, every election when we hear, uh, you know, the same old uh, calls for change. But, you know, in saying that, that therefore, I don't mean any uh, implied criticism of, of the government that, that have been in ever since the book uh, ends. I just think it's uh, the nature of politics. I mean, if you just consider, for instance, Tony Blair, I mean, I, I, I take as an epigraph to the book a uh, quote from a, an article he wrote for The Telegraph in 1996, where he described Pontius Pilate as the archetypal politician. Uh, 
you know, what's interesting about him is not that he was a bad man, but how nearly he was a good man. Well, I think that um, is, uh, if you'll excuse my saying, almost an, an eternal <laughs> um, dilemma in politics. And I, I'm as interested in Pontius Pilate as I am in, in Tony Blair. And I think that that, that battle of pragmatism and principle is, uh, is similarly uh, uh, an ongoing one. That was Richard Kelly, whose novel Crusaders is available now. In 1935, long before Facebook and social networking sites, a group of young mothers from all over the UK decided to overcome their sense of isolation by forming what they called a cooperative correspondence club. The magazine they produced for each other for over 50 years forms a unique record of female friendship in the late 20th century. Yet almost no one knew it even existed before my next guest, Jenna Bailey, chanced upon it in an archive. I asked Jenna how the CCC began. The way it started was a lot of women were reading a magazine called The Nursery World, which was a magazine for young mothers at the time where they could get advice or buy and sell prams and things like that. And one woman writing under the pseudonym Ubique wrote in an article saying, can any mother help me? I'm a mother of four and I'm kind of struggling and I'm looking for an occupation that will intrigue me and cost nothing. And several women wrote back to her saying, I feel exactly the same way, perhaps we could correspond. But so many women wrote to Ubique that she couldn't correspond individually with them, so they decided to write to each other in sort of a group format. So what the women agreed to do was write to each other in the form of a correspondence magazine. So the way a correspondence magazine works is there's one editor, and every woman agrees to write an article for each edition of the magazine. They mail it to the editor, the editor compiles it and hand stitches them together. So there's only one copy of each magazine, and she mails it from woman to woman. And as each woman reads it, she writes comments directly in the margins, so the text sort of grows as it gets passed around. And they agreed that they would do this twice a month. And what kind of backgrounds did the women come from? It was quite a diverse group of women. They ranged all across the middle class, and there were there was one working class woman who very definitely defined herself as working class, and there were a handful of women that had been in working class families that had worked their way up. But there were women in the upper middle class as well. Totally different in terms of political beliefs. There were there were conservatives, there were liberals, there were soldiers' wives, and there were wives of conscientious objectors. And personality-wise, the range was extremely diverse. Lots of quiet, conservative, and then a lot of outlandish, loud, sort of obnoxious characters. So it was really wide-ranging. Now, going back to the early years, started in 1935, and then the war comes along within a few years. Do you think the war was a really critical shaping time for these women and for their writing? Definitely. I think the war really shaped them as a group because... They were just sort of gearing up. It took them a while to get going in full motion. So then the war came, and it really could have been a time to break them up because of the different views, points that everyone had, and the different lifestyles and choices they were making at the time. And it was very emotional and a very heated time. But in a way, it's funny, it actually worked the opposite way, and it totally solidified this group of women as lifelong friends, partially because... It was just really interesting debate and they really stimulated and it made them grow together. But more importantly, because uh, the men were usually away, most of the women in the CCC, the name of the Cooperative Correspondence Club um, magazine, had to move a lot during the war and had to send their kids away a lot during the war. And so the magazine was the one constant during the war. They kept it up every month for the, the whole length of the war 
and it was it was some sort of a safety net for them. It was someone that they always could rely on and the friends that they knew were there the whole time. And in fact, the magazine throughout its life was a way of coping with the vicissitudes that life threw at them, wasn't it? Definitely. As age and change. Everything, because it was really an intimate magazine and because the women were living all over the UK, they were able to be very honest and disclose a lot of things that they might not have said to close friends that they were seeing more regularly. Mm. So it really became a huge source of support and place where they could really, they, they say it was the place where you could finally stop putting up a stiff upper lip and, mm. and actually show your true colours. Mm. And that brings me to something else that struck me about the correspondence, that the harshness of their lives really, although they rarely complain, it's all done with great good humour, but the things they cope with compared to what um, we think of as you know, a hard time now. It's really very striking comparison. I it's think. amazing. I was shocked at just how, how hard they had to work to make a house function. I mm. was very ignorant about that. But just, I mean, the one article written by a kitty about how she, you know, that they create their own electricity and all, and running the bathwater and all these things. And you just think now you don't consider those things. But the amount of work they had to do making all the kids' clothing and they just... I mean, I think from sun up to sundown, and, and then some, they were just working constantly and physically exhausted. But I, I think that they became the strongest women. I mean, I see Akidia now, and she's, I think she, she's in her, she's in her mid eighties now, and you know she doesn't heat her house. She still, she's. I mean, I'm freezing when I'm there, but I think she's just thick skinned through mm. all of the experiences that they went through, and they just had to work really hard. Yes. You say that. One of the subjects they didn't write a great deal about was the marriages, and they, they, they come up more tangentially rather than being the focus of what they write. But what kind of picture of, of I suppose, mid-century marriage do you think comes out of, of the magazine? Within the individual couples in this group, there was a lot, of, a lot more equality maybe than the typical relationship, mm. or at least is what I would understand the more typical relationship, because I think these women were very very bold and, and and oftentimes were sort of the, the head of the family, at least in the home, not necessarily mm. financially, though. But do you think, I mean, one, one impression that I got was perhaps the book was about thwarted ambition. They were finding ways of expressing themselves and doing all they could, but society didn't really allow them. I mean, as you said, often didn't allow them to continue a career after marriage. And even even those who did, the, the options open to them were, were limited to things like teaching and so on. And yet they're all very intelligent women, often highly educated women. Is it true to say that it's an outlet for ambition that couldn't be directed anywhere else because of the time they lived? Definitely. I think that's exactly true. I think, and I think you're right. I think it is, was that society really wasn't geared toward letting them express themselves or sort of experience the things that they would have wanted to experience. And I definitely, with this group of women, I'm sure most of them would have wanted to continue their careers and expressly said so to one another. And that's why this was such a brilliant outlet for them, what they did have a chance to experiment with their writing and really debate and discuss what they thought were what were important issues, but that they didn't really have an opportunity to talk about in any other form. And they were really pigeonholed into being being domesticated women and being mothers and that wasn't what a lot of them were naturally inclined to be and therefore were quite disappointed with sort of what they were stuck with in, their, mm. in terms of options. The book was published last year. What kind of reaction have you had to Well, yeah, the reaction has been amazing, actually. I've been very surprised and very pleased. But my thing, the thing I like best is that people like this sort of 
as an insight into women in the 20th century and that specific time period. But mostly what I really enjoy is that young mothers now are coming up to me saying, I feel exactly the way they do. And I think that's what's been most interesting about the feedback is that any women, most women rather, and most mothers say, like, I've been in that situation. And even though, you know, the specifics are different and obviously there's a lot more conveniences and a lot more support for mothers nowadays, that fundamentally that sense of isolation and losing yourself and your, you know, your identity um, I think it happens probably to almost all mothers and so a lot of women have been in touch and lots of different women groups have have said oh that's like us you know you should hear about us we got together in the 60s when we were all young moms and we're still in touch so there, I think there's lots of similar style groups I don't think mostly mostly there are groups that meet in person though there aren't a lot of writing groups because I think as most people know writing is sort of a dying art in mm. a sense or writing by post Jenna Bailey's book is called Can Any Mother Help Me? and is available in paperback now. My final guest today is Hanif Qureshi. Qureshi has been a major figure in the literary landscape since he published The Buddha of Suburbia in 1990, and his new novel, Something to Tell You, has drawn comparisons with his first. Both books share the same vital energy, large casts of sometimes comical characters, concern with metropolitan life and ambitious scope. Something to Tell You takes us inside the life and mind of Jamal, a 50-something psychoanalyst who finds people from his student days in the 1970s returning to haunt him in unsettling ways. I asked Hanif what the starting point for the new book had been. This novel began with an idea of a relationship between a boy and a girl. And the boy finds out that the girl is having some sort of relationship sexual with her father. The boy then takes some action to end this relationship with the father. And I had this story for ages in my mind. And it seemed like a good one for me. But I then spent a lot of time adding to it. I think it was partly because I turned 50. And thinking that you've been alive for 50 years, 50 years seems ages, half a century. And I began to see that I'd been through and seen a lot the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and that this was decent, uh, interesting material for me that I wanted to work into the fabric of this story. It's a very basic, simple story of a boy and a girl. So I spent a lot of time thinking about what sh else should go into this story and how the story could be continued sometime later, i.e. when the boy and the girl who have the relationship meet later on, what happens between them. But I also wanted to put in numerous other characters that represented different stuff that I've been thinking about, I guess. So building the structure of what is for me quite a long book took ages and was quite tricky to do. Did you know quite early on that you wanted to work on a broad canvas, though? I don't know what sort of writer I am. I mean, I've often thought that I was a writer who, who could do tight, short little books like, I don't know, The Body or Intimacy or even My Ear at His Heart. Little films like My Beautiful Laundrette, I guess. And then I think I want to do something that's much more sprawling and madder and wilder and less contained, that sometimes I'm too inhibited about my work. So... And I wanted to write a book, therefore, that was much more, let's say, like The Buddha of Suburbia, which was, a sort of, which was the first novel I wrote, probably. And 
there was a lot of energy in it and a lot of material in it because it, all this material had been sort of hanging around from my youth and from my childhood. The comparison has been drawn with a bit of suburbia in exactly that sense that it is a a novel of energy and scale and ambition. Well, I, I, I like doing the bigger books, but you can't do them that often mm. because you put everything in, all your energy and your ideas, a lot goes in, the characters that that can, as I say, represent different parts of you, are used up. It's not as though you can keep on doing that stuff, I don't think. And you mentioned you mentioned madness there, and Jamal, the central character, the narrator of this novel, is a psychoanalyst, and madness and treatment and fantasies run through the novel. They're an essential part of, of the fabric. When did you decide that Jamal was going to be a, a psychoanalyst? Well, I had an uncle who ran a school for autistic children. An uncle I was very, very fond of, who I spent the summers with. And he said to me one day, he said, you want to kill your father and have sex with your mother? And I was very shocked by that. And I'd never heard anybody say anything so wild to me. And then I read philosophy at university and was taught by Richard Bolheim, who also taught me psychoanalysis. And being a writer, of course, you're fascinated by the human mind, what's in it, and other people's minds. And psychoanalysis and literature are very close. Literature is, of course, as it were, bigger than psychoanalysis. Uh, and, of course, Freud was fascinated by culture. He never said, in a way, that we should all have psychoanalysis, which would be mad, imagine a world like that. But he said that uh, the action is, is, is in culture. Culture is our therapy. That's where we find each other, and that's where we know each other, and that's where we talk about what's most important and deepest for us, actually, mm. in our culture, and having a proper culture. And Jamal is very much part of that, because not only is he a psychoanalyst, he is also a writer, and he uses his, his casework to write books, popular books, about the mind and human behaviour and so on. I mean, one of the things that psychoanalysis has provided is a lot of writing, I mean, if you type in Freud to Google, you'll, you'll come up with dozens and dozens, thousands, hundreds of thousands of essays and material about psychoanalysis, i.e. it's in a way that you wouldn't, let's say, about, I don't know, cognitive mm. behavioural mm. therapy, that it's created a literature. And I figured, when I went to university to read philosophy, that the answers to the questions that I wanted to know, which were questions about sexuality, about childhood, about authority, about religion, about parents, about why we live, why we die, and so on, that the answers to these questions are far more likely to be in something like psychoanalysis than they were actually in philosophy, mm. which in the days when I read it was much more analytical and, 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 and mostly about what they called concepts. Yeah. Now, Jamal has come to a crossroads, I suppose you might say, the, the epigraph from, from Robert Johnson to the book is I went down to the crossroads, fell down on my knees. And he seems to be using his professional demeanour as a kind of barrier between himself and the world, but the world seems to be increasingly encroaching and making those those barriers come down. I mean, so do you think, is that a fair representation of his position? Well, the point of an analyst, of any kind of therapist, is that they stand back and that they can see the, the patient, they can see what's going on in the patient's mind, that they're not, as it were, involved in the patient's world. 
and you might say that, that this is also partly a, uh, a position that writers sometimes are said to 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 to, to, to inhabit, which is that we are um, obviously participants in the world, um, but also that we are observers too, that we look at what's going on. But he's not simply got that professional distance from his patients, but he's also he also has difficulty perhaps fully engaging and committing with those in his personal life. I think that's probably true also of the of the protagonist in in the Buddha of Suburbia too. Of someone who is keen on um detachment, I guess. Mm. Yeah. It's partly also a way of constructing a book. I mean, in a way, I have more fun writing the characters who are really not like me than I do writing the characters that are like me, because in a way, you, it's very hard to get a grasp of yourself in any way. But you can write the other people with more fun. I like mm. writing the women. I like writing Henry. I like writing Miriam. And they've got much more energy and spirit, in a way, than the central character. And that's how I like to construct my book, with this sort of um, almost hole in the middle of it but all this wild energy around them going on around the sides. And the energy is in the writing, but I, but I, I like to write from, from, from some sort of still centre, which is some sort of representation of my own mind. Mm. And the other characters are always telling Jamal what's wrong with him or what they think of him. And, you know, as you say, they're, they're sort of very energetic, sometimes larger than life, sometimes quite, quite mad, one could say, in, in the way they conduct their own lives. And and Jamal is, is kind of in the middle, being sort of pushed in various directions and increasingly pushed as his past begins to catch up with him and that's really the, the, the driver of the plot, isn't it? His, the events which you said um, you originally conceived the, the story of the, of, of the boy and girl from the 1970s come back very tangibly to haunt him. Well, all of Freud is really a, about childhood and, 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 and the adult, as it were, is recovering child. And that means nothing if it's not specific. I, you can only make sense of this in terms of the, of the individual's personal history. Um, so our hero has been involved in a bad thing. And this bad thing shapes his life. This is a picture of all our lives being shaped by our childhood and by the bad things that we have and have not done, mostly have done um, in fantasy. And it's a novel about the idea partly the goodness only comes out of guilt that the better people behave the more guilty they feel and that guilt is, in a way is, is what makes us civilised but also that makes our lives awful mm. and his whole past is really replayed isn't it because of the return of various figures from it that he had completely lost touch with he as a result of that is forced to to go, ba to go back through and confront those feelings of, of guilt and the turning points and you know the what ifs. The whole novel is about being haunted in the way that a life is a haunting, i.e. that if you repress things and everybody does they'll come back over and over again like ghosts. And it, it seemed to me in the end that the book was was essentially quite positive that several of the key characters had kind of worked something through and maybe hadn't sorted everything out but the endings for them also had a, a sense of, of new beginnings. It's not a sad book. 
It's quite a happy book, but it's got lots of energy and jokes in it. It's not a pessimistic book. The characters find new life. As you say, they often find new life at the end. They find new life through finding a new vocation or a new way to look at their vocation as, as an artist, in the case of Henry. Or they find other people who cheer them up. So the possibilities of there being new relationships or of there being new chapters in people's lives is never given up on. I mean, the world isn't only a terrible place. If it was only a terrible place, it would be easy to deal with. The fact that the world isn't only a terrible place makes it more terrible. Hanif Qureshi's novel, Something to Tell You, is available now. You can listen to extended interviews with all the writers in this podcast by visiting Faber's website. You'll also be able to hear the authors reading extracts from their books there. The next Faber podcast will include an interview with Peter Carey, talking about his new novel, His Illegal Self. You can make sure you don't miss that by subscribing to this podcast at iTunes. There's a link on the Faber site, or visit iTunes and simply type Faber in the search box. Now it only remains for me to thank you for listening and say goodbye until next time. Goodbye.